0: And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. I'm not going to take that to Australia to the first ever country to have the initiative on climate 13 It was an important 13th and November 1923. This part of the after each of those workshops as well. going to that we can a the Economy and page, and the program consultation. Australia doing to through my website, which is You're going to be to the
1: and you can to a there. That's going to be really exciting, isn't it? It is not it I know there's a lot of people already looking forward to the Chad Mac and Jay Jack seminar. That. A week
2: after the Cue the
1: music. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. My name is Glenn Cook. I'm your host and joined in studio is my regular co-host, Pat Stewart. Hello. So we've been threatening for quite a while in quite a few podcasts that we were going to start talking about definitions in training. Mm-hmm. by no way are we claiming that these are 100% accurate this is a conversational style so we're not saying this is gospel there's a lot of information that exists online you can actually do your own research These are still open to interpretation on what people use. Some people will say it some way and other people will use a variation on how it's pronounced and said and so forth. So what I do encourage you to do is open education, is to go out and have a look for yourself, read up and study about Pavlov Skinner and anybody else that we're talking about their subject matter there's a but making sure also that you don't probably base it on wikipedia have a look at some more uh, creditable sources that when you do get some education it's the right type as well So, with operant conditioning, this was originally touched on by Conrad Lorenz. Then, fundamentally, B.F. Skinner started to look more heavily into it. So, he did a lot of research into operant conditioning and its compounding effect on learning. With operant conditioning, what happens to you is that you learn through experiences that certain things have a positive outcome and certain things have a negative outcome.
0: Yeah. where it's
1: in and to Absolutely. So with that, there's a matrix that exists around that which some call the motivation matrix. You're exactly right when you're talking about people often confuse positive with positive reinforcement. You can also have positive punishment. So there are two types that exist, positive reinforcement, so as you said, the plus sign when you have a plus sign in front of anything, it's to add something to it. Yeah. Whenever you
0: hear the word, okay, positive, in that context, it means to add. And negative, obviously...
1: It's to subtract, to take away. Yeah. That's a good not that obvious. Yeah. So the
0: negative, think of it as in the minus symbol, and that is to take away. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. In fact, it will explain to you, but negative is to remove.
1: That's correct. Let's break it down a little bit there and talk about positive reinforcement. First
0: to reinforcement. Yes. So reinforcement is to make something more likely.
1: That's it
0: really. Mm. Is that the application? Well, anything doesn't have to be application, but something that makes a behaviour more likely to happen is reinforcing to
1: that behaviour. Yeah, it's to grow something, to build it. For example, if you're in the army, like Pat was, and he was calling for reinforcements. That means that they're looking for more soldiers to come into the battle. Well, that's what reinforcements are when you call for backup or reinforcements. It's the same thing when we're talking about reinforcement as far as a behaviour. What we're actually looking for is we're looking to build or grow the behaviour. What we're trying to do is we're trying to shape it in the animal's mind that's the behaviour I want to see more of. This will occur and it often does. These things occur naturally without our intervention whatsoever. So you don't have to be present for an animal to experience something that it wants to grow in. If an animal finds a hunting ground, no humans about, we're talking wolves out in the wild, if they find a hunting ground which is flourishing with rabbits or squirrels or whatever they're after, they're going to find that a reinforcing area and they're going to continue to look for, if they find something and they go away and they'll come back another day and they'll look to return to that area because I think the last three times I've been here, I've met my quota in what I'm looking for. So Positive reinforcement. Adding something. Yeah, what you're removing is an aversive, something that the species, in this case the dog, finds unpleasant. So we're removing that and the the removal of that actually has a reinforcing effect on the species, in this case the dog.
2: Yeah,
0: you remove the den- negative, the annoying sound, by plugging in your your teether, and
1: that's very important behavior. Off the teether, on became more likely to happen because of that. So, in the application of behavior in in the field of dog training, anything that your dog, so this could be your dog walks into a room there's someone or something in the room that your dog has an aversive effect to. Aversive means that it's having a negative effect to it. So the dog walks in the room, it sees something, it's stimulated by something. Once it does experience that feeling and we come up and we remove it, then the dog feels reinforced by that. It feels gratitude that whatever it was that was causing it to be perplexed in that way, when we remove it, the dog feels reinforced by that. Okay,
0: Okay. Mm. You see that happen quite a lot. So you could hear that go either way. Anyway. You could say positive rewards or give a reward and that's a positive reinforcement often. Although that's not if you if you get angry at it point out the picture and yelling fuck wires, you do it? So that's how we want to explain it. So then we have to deal with punishment. Right? And so the word punishment makes people's heads end head up on the back of their head sometimes, but in this context it does need to make less likely that
2: yeah,
1: again, to talk about what we talked about before, it's still a motivator. Punishment still motivates you. R- reinforcement motivates you to continue more of that behaviour. Punishment motivates you to do less of that behaviour. So uh, a positive punishment
0: means I like, add something that will make it less likely to happen, whatever the behaviour is. Mm. And negative punishment means I like, take something
1: away that will make that behaviour less likely. Well, it's not necessarily taking anything away from the dog might mean that you're taking the dog away from the area as well. Yeah. Not.
0: You
1: know yeah. I mean? Anything that you want, if it's taken away from you as an act of punishment, okay, you're going to view that as a negative punishment. And so, this one as a definition of punishment must work, otherwise
0: it's not a punishment. Do you remember the season depot
2: where we say, to
0: provide the cupcake and Bart keeps touching the cupcake? Yep. Why they keep stupid? That's funny, right? But,
1: It's a perceived punishment, and that's one of the things that uh, a lot of times which prevents people from effectively controlling and managing their dog behaviour is they have perception of what is reinforcement or a perception of what is punishment, and neither one actually is. If it's not having the desired outcome with the dog, if the dog doesn't see it as reinforcement, again to borrow somebody that I have a lot of respect for, Dr. Esther Schulk or Shulky, I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name. <laughs> with what Dr. Esther says is it doesn't matter what you think and feel. At the end of the day, it matters what the dog thinks and feels. So perception of reinforcement and punishment may have a different effect in the mind of the species that we're actually doing the training with.
0: That's right. So punishment and reinforcement is Yeah, exactly. And the example I like sometimes use in that is that if I say we're going to go on holidays, you go, yep, I'm excited about that. And that's take you go okay. camping. Some people go, wow, that's positive, that's awesome. that's great. And for other people, that's positive, that's great. I don't want to go camping. Same thing, that same picture.
1: And dig a hole and poo in it. Yeah. If like, <laughs> 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 the so some people,
0: that, if that same picture can be positive for some people. They don't want
1: it to happen. I was watching this video the other day. and This is completely off topic but still relevant in what you just said where I was watching a guy getting kicked in the knackers by a lady okay. and for me, I couldn't think of anything worse. Even the side of it was making me have like a <laughs> online. Just someone showed it to me. But <laughs> the reality is, is that I had a, a sympathetic reflex to the behavior. Like I could actually feel the pain from it. And I couldn't think of anything worse. I was thinking in my mind, how could somebody actually enjoy this? But clearly they were, exactly. which is kind of insane. Yeah, but we move on. We move on. So that is operating the and how we intend to use it. I think we're about 90% textbook
0: accurate. There'll be someone with their book in front of them screaming out their headphones.
1: well. Well, let me have an abbreviated version of how operant conditioning, the breakdown of it. Fundamentally, what happens is stimulation occurs, okay? So stimulation, as we know, is anything that affects one of our senses, and we've got five of them. So we've got sight, smell, taste, auditorial, and touch. Anything that affects one of those sensors, we're stimulated by it. And naturally, we have a response to that stimulation. So if you respond to stimulation, there's going to be an outcome or a consequence, which is either going to be positive or negative. So if it's positive, you're going to want more frequency in it. If it's negative, you're going to want less frequency in it. You're going to want to see reduction in that. So either a continuance or a reduction in the consequence to the response of that stimuli.
0: Yep. The next thing we'll talk about, because it's used together, is classical conditioning, or sometimes referred to it, a tabloid conditioning. Mm-hmm. Why is it called tabloid conditioning? Because tabloid's head looks so tough. <laughs> There's a meme that will talk about. The tabloid, in a way, had a picture. We've had a number of times when we were doing experiments on film too. They were doing experiments on it, so I wanted to find a way to get that from them. Essentially, found out that if you rang a bell and fed the dogs, rang a bell and fed the dogs, then eventually just ringing the bell would bring on the same physiological response as providing the food, and that was the saliva that helped salivating. A classical response is a a response that is outside of the control of the organism Mm. and
2: happens
0: because of two paired stimuli. So, if I want to pair two stimuli that have a signal that has a strong function, So that begins the delivery of food in this case, And then a new signal with no function. And if I put that new signal with no function about 1.6 seconds in front of the old signal with a strong function, soon enough, and in some funds in a delivered 8 to 12 reps, you get
2: an acquisition, and we'll talk about acquisition in a minute. Mm. But before too long,
0: that new signal with no function being developed takes on the power of the old signal with a strong function. And what's important to remember in classical conditioning. Is that it is outside the control of the organism who takes the dog. So, those dogs that have what had, they weren't choosing to salivate because they heard the bell. They
1: were me when they heard the bell. It wasn't a conscious decision that they made. Yeah, it's in preparation of the food because effectively what happens is the. You can click a clicker all day long. If you've never done any pairing exercise with a with a clicker before, you can click it all day long as much as you want. And it will become eventually part of background noise. Like the dog might show curiosity towards it, like what's that sound? But because there is no meaning to it, it hasn't served any function to it in any way, shape or form, the dog will soon lose interest in it. In some ways it might become an aversive. It might be something the dog thinks that's annoying. Like when you're clicking a pen in a meeting and people look at you and go, dude, seriously, what's happening? But if you were to click that pen and give someone 50 bucks, they'd be looking forward to the clicking of that pen clicking that pen would immediately make them look at you or even make them feel like they got $50. So what happens, as you said before in, in your explanation, I'll describe it a little bit differently, is that fundamentally what happens, the clicker is itself, when it first starts clicking, is what you call neutral stimuli. But then after a period of time, it becomes a conditioned stimuli because it becomes, in the order of reinforcements, it becomes a secondary reinforcer alerting the dog subconsciously that the primary reinforcer is going to be presented. In this case, it's food, all right, something that the dog strongly desires and it has to have. You have to, in order to survive, you have to have food and water. You know, it's one of your primary functions of survival. It does,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah, it's the comprehension of it. And you'll see that in the dog a lot of times when we're talking with students when we're talking about acquisition and people say, well, how do I know I have it? You know you have it when you get that automated response from the dog where the dog is snapping its head towards your tree pouch. So as soon as that starts happening, the dog becomes aware, like my brain is indicating to me like my neurons are fired to tell me that I'm going to get rewarded, I'm going to get food or I'm going to get a tug or whatever the dog desires. When you're talking about primary reinforcers, It can be whatever the dog wants at that time. Now, people have a variation on that. Some people say it should be only existential food. Some people say it's whatever the dog wants. So if the dog wants bacon or cheese or treats or whatever, it's whatever the dog wants at that time. Yeah, well, if a hungry dog is already satiated, then a primary reinforcer is not going to be more food. It's going to be something else. So there will be a tier of what reinforcements actually are.
0: immediately I want you to say before I can explain how it works he says I oh, know I'm not to <laughs> have a clicker and I was I drove to the it and he doesn't understand the clicker and I was like okay we are going to go back and I was there uh, which is something I do if I, if I know I'm going to have a client because we've got six and I I take one off I give it to them and explain immediately how to load that marker that clicker we're going to talk about that in a minute mm. but I immediately show them how that works So that makes my job a hell of a lot easier if and when they do call me, then I turn up and the dogs like, that's wrong, marker loaded, or the clicker is free. That makes my job a lot easier, and if they don't call, well, I'm the clicker, but they're they're not exactly expensive. Yep. So that is a good time for us then to talk about markers. A marker is just a conditioned sound. It can be a word. It can be the clicker. It can be anything you do. It could be clapping your hands.
1: Whistle. It's it's identified usually in two different breakdowns, verbal or mechanical. Mm -hmm. There you go. And so then that marker
0: is an indicator to the dog that the reward is coming. Mm -hmm. And you can have multiple markers leading things. So I have reward in-place markers. I have, like, so that would be a duration marker, you call that. That marker means you're doing good, you're doing what you're doing, and you may be rewarded. And there's another marker that I use, like a terminal marker,
1: That means the behavior that I wanted you to do is over. Come and get your reward. Yeah, that's right. In some cases, some people, for their keep going marker, they'll say good. For other people, they'll use one click and for terminating the behavior, end the behavior and come and get your reward, they'll use two clicks Mm -hmm. or a whistle.
0: to mm. the <laughs> took off and out the door
1: Because you terminated behaviour. that's also considered something that you call a queue. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's a queued command. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
0: then we can probably talk about now the difference between an aversive theme and a correction. So this is where there's takes of room for debate and it's just how I use these words and how I'll continue to use them. So if you understand what I mean when I say this, a correction is what you do to the dog that stops everything and makes him do one other thing. So I can't correct the dog unless I asked him to do something. So for example, my just walking around and I tell him to sit and he doesn't, if I correct him, he will then sit. That's the only way a correction can work. It stops all the bullshit and makes one thing happen. That is in contrast to an aversive stimulus, which stops one thing but would make anything happen. So if my dog is sitting on a tree and I give him an aversive stimulus, the only thing that it should an adverten to is that pictures on a tree, but it could then do anything that he wanted. You
1: could have an ask for anything in particular. So one is specific to the behaviour at the time, the other is specific to any behaviour. So stop everything. Yeah, stop everything,
0: do one thing, it's a correction, and an aversive chemic, stop that one thing,
2: do anything. hmm And that's how I use them. You, is that how you use those words? Yeah, I
1: kind of agree with that. Yeah. Yeah told to we're correct dog, but unless he knows the behavior, he can't correct There's probably another way to explain it in if you're looking for formality or informality in certain behaviours as well. So if you're asking for formality in behaviour, you're saying to the dog, Yes, stop everything and just do this behavior. I want you to be focused and doing this. If a dog's in a informal situation. So it's sort of running around free uh, and it does something annoying and you ask the dog, okay, you're not allowed to do that, which is practically what you were talking about before. Mm-hmm. So you're allowed to run around the backyard, do whatever you want, but you're not allowed to go and sniff and knock over the bin. Mm-hmm. That's a piss-off behaviour. Stop doing that right now. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So hmm. There's other good old terminology that we used to use quite frequently and I still do in training these days and it's what we call training for abstinence and training for action. If you're training for abstinence, this is one where we're teaching a social walking exercise for argument's sake and people say to me, if you're teaching the dog like the dog is learning something for the first time, how can you justify correcting your dog? Well, if you're teaching for action, like if you're teaching the dog to perform a behavior that it's, it has no comprehension of, you can't justify correcting the dog then, okay? Because it has no understanding of it. However, if you're teaching for abstinence, it's a behavior that the dog already knows and is currently doing, such as jumping up on people, okay? So your dog already has learned to jump up on people. In that sort of situation, you're saying to the dog, you're allowed to run around me and you're allowed to do anything you want, but you're not allowed to jump up on me. Okay, you aren't allowed to do it. I often look at that type of correction as abstaining the dog from a type of behavior. You aren't allowed to jump up or you're not allowed to dig or something like that because there is no way to communicate to the dog at any given time unless it receives punishment related to that specific type of behavior. Think of, I know we're digressing slightly, but it's still important in what we're talking about at this point in time. Think of, if you would, a horse put into a paddock. Horses in a paddock, it's walking around inside the paddock and there's an electric fence lining the paddock. How do you communicate with a dog at that point in time that it, the, the horse I should say, how do you communicate with the horse at that point in time that it can't go over and touch the electric fence? You can't. It has to experience it. So, it's a behavior that we're teaching it to abstain from going up and rubbing up against the fence. Have you ever seen a horse that, with no electric fence in the property, that's run up and down a fence before and they slash the hell out of their legs? Well, the whole point to the electric fence is to stop the animal from running up and down it. So, what we're doing effectively is teaching them stop that behavior right there, right then. Yeah, so that's an aversive stim. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. Got that one. A uh, couple of I and he used the term extinction.
0: Mm.
1: It <laughs> well, that's primarily where it comes from. Yeah, but can you that? When we're training an extinction event, what we're trying to do is either significantly reduce or kill off the behaviour altogether. Mm-hmm. For example, puppies, when you first get a puppy and you bring a puppy home. Okay, this is one of the things that drives people mad. As you know, we breed puppies, Sam breeds puppies, so effectively we see puppies, we deal with puppies. In that sort of situation, one thing that I explain thoroughly to new owners is the first week you have this puppy is what we're going to call Hell Week. Pup's going to go home and it's going to be in complete shock. Like it'll be amazed and intrigued at its new life, it'll be running around with the family during the day, but at night all of a sudden something new occurs. I'm away from my litter mates, which I've never experienced before, I'm in an entirely new place. So we try and do reduction techniques, which this is almost a whole podcast on raising. We probably should. We can do reduction techniques in giving the dog scented towels and clothing or toys or something like that, which has the scent of the litter mates on it. Nonetheless, that pup's still going to freak out at some stage. I'm in a new place. So the puppy wakes up a couple of hours after sleeping and all of a sudden it's in a location. Let's call that location the laundry. And it completely goes AWOL. It's frightened, it's distressed and the worst possible thing that you could do as an owner at that point in time is go and retrieve the puppy from the laundry. Now other people will say contradictory information to that. I say bollocks to that. The reason why is because if you go and interrupt the puppy during that point in time, what you do is you reset the value in the dog screaming and crying, the distress that it's showing. So you not only do you reset it but it also significantly comes up at a higher threshold because the pup is already wailing and crying, okay? So it's gone from a certain, well, let's call a threshold, goes at a certain threshold, it increases in intensity. You think I've got to go to the puppy because the neighbors or I'm distressed about it myself, you interrupt the cycle, it resets it higher. Okay? So now you have a puppy that thinks to itself, "In order to get your attention, I have to elevate my screaming and wailing to this level, yeah. okay, so it starts so, so yep perfect way to do it, yeah yeah he, well he got, he starts at three, so he was at one, he elevated to four. You interrupted, so you went in at that point in time, which reinforced the dog. See, this is when we talk about perception of animals in learning. This is how the puppy perceives cause and effect. I cry, you rescue me. So the crying had an effect on what happened. He starts at three, now he goes up to six, and you're thinking, oh shit, I've got to get out of bed and get this pup. So you go out, you reset that again, and you increase the threshold once again. This is where extinction training comes into full effect. The way to deal with extinction training is when the puppy is in the laundry, let it wail and let it cry, okay? If you're going to go to it, if you need to check on it, you've got to wait for a period of time where the animal puppy in this situation completely reduces its crying and stops. So you've got to have like a a window of time where the, the puppy stops altogether. The pup has to realize it's silence that gets me reinforced. It's not crying. Because any time, and same thing for crate training, I'm looking at a crate right now across the studio, which you've got in the room. Same thing goes for crate training. If you put your puppy or your dog in the crate and you rescue it while it's screaming and scratching at the door, guess what? You've reinforced that behavior. Okay. So extinction training, with that, what we're doing is we're waiting for that period of time where the burst happens. We've gone from level four to level eight. And then what happens is we get what's called an extinction burst. So all of a sudden the behaviour bursts and it flatlines. It drops automatically. That's the time that – well, a little time after that, but that's the, certainly the time that you would want to go to the pup, rescue it, and therefore that's what we call extinction training. Mm-hmm. So to summarize extinction, you
0: would say that a behaviour goes
1: under the water, goes extinct? Yes. And that happens in clicker training as well. When people click, and after a period of time, if they forget to recharge the clicker, so they're clicking but no food, the animal thinks, well, there's no purpose in responding to this clicker anymore. There's no reinforcement value or no, no value attached to it. Why respond to it?
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: Correct.
1: Absolutely. If it's self rewarding, then the animal's gonna find reason to continue doing it. Yeah. well, I mean
0: birth most people would understand the
2: idea that get worse before they get better. I have an
0: example i you get that. We're all conditioned to know that the light switch turns on the light. When you walk into the room, you turn on the light. You get the switch one time, the light turns on. On the day that you walk into the room flick the switch and the light doesn't turn on, most people are confused by that and they flick the switch a few times, right? That's the extension of it. If you flick the switch
1: a few times thinking, I've already this, this is what I want to do. Flicking it a few times is suddenly going to make electricity work. Yeah. but if it did, so it doesn't work and then you stop using the light all together, you
0: know, oh, that light doesn't work. Yep. But if you flick it a few times and then the light doesn't turn on, you go, okay, And next time you walk into that room, you would flick the light several times. So that's an extinction burst. And so you can using an extinction burst, if you can get through it, you can make a behaviour go extinct and you just have to write it down. Or if you reward during the extinction burst, you can make a behaviour much stronger. We okay. so can use that to our advantage as well. Like a
1: hold bark. Exactly. So if we're teaching a dog to well straight a dog in a hold bark and do a bark and then be rewarding, and then go back and park once then get rewarded. Or if you want more intensity in the Holton Bark.
0: Yeah. So he learns that I bark once to get rewarded, and then he wait, for part one to get awarded, so he barks once and don't reward him, so you try again and then you are reward him and slowly do that. After the same as you your healing, you might start with one step and reward the dog, and then two steps, and then after a little while you're awarding, you stop rewarding the dog when you normally do, and he says, I normally get rewarded here, maybe I'll just heal better and come into that position better, stronger, for longer, whatever, and then you reward, and then that sets so a new standard that the dog has to meet. That is, again,
1: the bird and stuff like that That's kind of a cross between extinction training and also intermittent schedule of reinforcement, which we're yeah. going to talk about shortly. For an example that I would use with a bit more clarity in the Holden Bark, and for those who don't know what a Holden Bark is, it's an exercise predominantly used in a lot of working dog scenarios, fundamentally something like IPO, where the dog goes into a blind, there's a helper standing there with the sleeve on, and the dog has to maintain a distance and also an intensity in the bark. Trainers sometimes struggle with getting that intensity in the bark at times and this is where extinction training can come into effect. So the dog comes in, he's barking at you with a certain intensity and you're thinking to yourself, it's good but it's not great. So what happens is through frustration the dog pushes itself and the intensity rises and as soon as that does, you break and reinforce the dog, the dog gets the sleeve. So it starts realising that's what you're actually after, you wanted the intensity there. Or then he stops. Yep. Well, that's when you failed to surf it and you went over it. So like a roller coaster, you're doing a slow ascension, but the, the descent is quite quick. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, good analogy. Okay,
1: so then let's talk about intermittent reinforcement But versus- Well, let's start with continuous. So so continuous is one behaviour, one reward. Yeah. What do you think- any time that dog is learning a new behavior. So for example, if we're teaching again, when we are using stealing the phrase that we're talking about before teaching for action. So we're teaching a sit, for example, and we're blurring the dog in position. So we lure the dog in position. The dog does it. We've had acquisition with our marker. The dog goes into position, click feed. Okay. So click feed, click feed, click feed, because we're shaping a behavior that the dog doesn't understand. So we're creating an actionable behavior where the dog is starting to learn the principles of core behavior of what you actually want. Even though a dog knows how to sit in the wild, we don't have to have any human intervention in teaching a dog how to sit, but we do have to have intervention teaching the dog when to sit. That's the difference in putting it on cue. So eventually we have to teach the dog, when I say the word sit, what you need to do is put your bum to the ground. So we're starting to lure it in. So when the dog starts to perform this behavior for us, we say sit, the dog does the behavior, we click and reward the dog. Now what we're doing is we're changing – well, we haven't talked about intermittent. That's That's continuous. One One behavior, one reward. reward. Yep, same thing every single time. So if you continue on that cycle, because it's continuous, if you continue on that cycle, that's exactly what you'll get. So the animal will say, I'm happy to be stuck in this loop. I won't learn anything else. I'll just stay right here in time where I am.
2: Mm. One equals one, no higher
0: expectancy is what we get. Which can be handy if you want a flat dog. If you're training a dog to just perform carts the well robotically, then
1: useful, If you relate that to people, that's why people effectively don't have any ambition to be better than what they are because what they're getting is sufficient to what they expected.
0: Yeah, that's why.
1: under control and This is uh, great for pet dog training. Yeah, exactly. The problem with it comes
0: that the reward is predictable and measurable mm. and that the dog can go, you asked me to tick and tick equals one unit of reward. If there's no chance of you giving anything else, if I tick you, will definitely give me one unit of reward because that's what you are always given. But chasing that squirrel is two units of
2: reward.
1: <laughs> a competing reinforcer yeah. or a competing stimulus, I should say. Yeah. The
2: entire, again, after that. Squirrel. Exactly. Yep.
1: So that's why we then
0: have to bring in a intermittent schedule
1: of reinforcement. Well the yeah, the intermittent schedule of reinforcement is beneficial in the aspect that what we're especially for people who are desiring to shape better behaviours out of their dogs, mm-hmm. because what we're essentially doing there is saying to the dog, Okay, so now you've learned to sit. You understand that concept. That's great but what I want is a faster sit or a straighter sit. Okay, so I'm trying to shape it so you're closer to my body or you're sitting with more speed. So after a period of time, you say to the dog, sit, the dog sits, and you go click feed, sit, sit, dog sits, click feed, and we're just going on this cycle. And then one day you stop. So you say to the dog, sit, the dog does it, but you don't feed the dog. Through frustration, the dog is thinking to itself, what happened? What happened? It's trying to, in its own way as being a dog, it's trying to analyze what actually happened there and then, which is great. That's exactly what we want. So the dog, unbeknownst to it, it tries a little harder. It pushes it to try a little bit harder. It becomes hungrier in the behavior. And that's what we're doing. So a couple of things might happen. First of all, the dog might be totally confused and not know what the hell's going on, which is initially that's inevitable. That's going to happen. But because the dog does know the sit, you've been working away at this behavior and you've gone through a teaching phase into a training phase where the dog knows what it is, then the dog says to itself, okay, I know what this is. So the next time you say it to the dog, you just play it cool. That's what your job is. Just play it cool. Let the dog go through that element of confusion. Then what you say to the dog is sit. The dog slams its ass to the ground like faster than you've ever seen before. Click, and reinforce the dog. Not only reinforce, but we also using another term which we call jackpotting, which is giving the dog significantly more food than what it's seen before. Yeah. And so really you to create a gambler. Exactly. You're definitely trying to create a, a gambler.
0: Because that lets me know that my marker is loaded with an intermediate reward schedule out and amount. Because you can look in the box and go, I'm sure it'll pieces of kibble, but that click could announce any number of kibble. Mm. So what it's leaving behind what's here to go and get that. And that's, that's what I do. It doesn't even have to be in the box, it can be object food. I like my dogs to be able to be eating a bowl of food. Me click and they come flying over me to take one cheap piece of cable off of me, leaving behind their whole thing of blue. Because in their head, they're thinking clicking could be anything, it could be any measure. I can look at this, this is
1: measurable, this is continuous, I can see what it is. But when you click, there's possibility. Yep, and obviously, in order for it to think
0: it could be more than what's in the world, it has to have been at some point. Yep. Alright, so that's continuous and intermediate reinforcement schedule. The other thing I want to talk about, because we use it a fair bit and we have it already in here, is the difference between asking for a behaviour shaping, luring, and using compulsion. Mm. Luring is the most common unit in dog training most people are teaching that everyone sort of understands the LID about the dog followed it to food or toy or whatever it wants around.
1: The it's the easiest way and initially it's the best way to start teaching a dog.
0: That's because the sitting as an example, you hold it in one dog and above the dog's nose, the best way to get to that is to put it down on the ground. That's the tip that you wanted because you the thing that you were luring for. Mm, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So that's ruring, that's the simple of that. But the ruring is always happening at the direct reward, right? And we'll talk about indirect in a second. But the lure is in front of the dog, you follow the thing. The lure is the thing that you want. Yep. You follow that thing that you want.
1: So like most behaviours, when we're starting off teaching the dog, the dog has no concept of what it's supposed to do. Earlier on, Pat talked about the word shaping. Shaping is the overall compound of when we're developing a behaviour with a dog. So it doesn't matter whether we're using luring or whether we're using compulsion. Shaping is the umbrella term that we use when we're creating behavior, an unknown behavior, and we're turning it into a revealed behavior. So initially with a dog, it doesn't understand what it's supposed to do, has no concept. Like a potter turning a lump of clay into a vase or into a pot, it's initially raw material, it's a blob of clay, he puts it on the wheel, puts his hands to it, so he's effectively managing that clay and then he starts to reveal something from it over a period of time, effectively what we're doing in training.
0: We just wait. The dog alters the behavior, then we mark and reward, and the
1: dog learns the behavior through. Well, you might not even be waiting. You might just see the dog doing something and think to yourself, "Geez, I'd like to see more of that behavior."
0: As I said, luring is a direct reward because the dog's following the reward and checking is usually more of an indirect reward because it's not visible to him. I've got it, he usually knows I have it, but he has to do something away from the reward in order to get the reward. Mm. And then for bringing on a bad idea, we can also talk about, say, compulsion. Checking with my dick is that the dog's dick, they know how to do it, they will eventually do it, and I can just click when he does it and then get the reward and I can eventually put that on cue. Compulsion...
1: We're physically guiding.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. The concept or even the word compulsion is often linked to punishment. When people hear the word compulsion, they're thinking you're immediately suffering. It's Well, it's one of the devil's tools, isn't it? According to some people. Realistically, it's not. It's simply guidance. As I've demonstrated to people before, if somebody's sitting in a chair and you give them your hand to help them up from the chair, you're helping to compel them forward so you're guiding them forward. There doesn't have to be any pain or sufferance in using the art of compulsion. In fact, compulsion's been used for many, many years, very successfully, with no problems whatsoever. In fact, most dogs over history, most animals over history have experienced compulsion in one way or another, and they certainly will in nature without any intervention from us. Regardless of what people are saying on the internet or regardless of the two-minute expert who's talking about training their dog, most people who have negative connotations with the word compulsion have very little understanding of what they're actually doing. Yeah, well, I have a picture of compulsion
0: other than what it actually means to me. Yeah. All right, so then we, we did talk about direct and indirect rewards. To go a little bit deeper on that. For me, when I say a direct reward is a reward that we're looking at, an mm-hmm. indirect reward is a reward that you're not looking at. The same
1: reward can be direct or indirect, depending on what we're With compulsive or guidance methods, it's usually more an indirect reward. So first of all, you're placing the animal in position, marking, and then reinforcing the animal. So at that point in time, you're usually going to your treat pouch after the animal is in position. So you're putting the animal physically in position, you're marking, which is terminating behaviour. Once that happens, you allow the dog to come around to your pouch and you feed the dog. Whereas in luring... It's as you said, it's direct reinforcement that the animal is looking directly at it and then you're using that to lure and shape the dog into position.
0: Something that could be to people sometimes to allow out we do a decoy in buy work, either decoy a direct or an indirect reward, that can mm-hmm. change. If I'm asking for a deal and I need to send my dog for a buy, if I've
1: got a focus deal on me, then it was an indirect reward. But if I allow him to look at the help of the Bitcoin bit 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 and then buy from there, then it's a direct reward. A direct
0: So, you can't say food is a direct reward and toys are a direct reward or anything like that. It's the means of delivery versus the behavior that's being asked for. It can be the same thing. Mm. It doesn't have to be a different thing at all. So, there is just one more couple of words I want to talk about and get the proper use of them understood. And something we will try away from the escape and avoidance it. Because escape has such uh, negative connotations and by negative. As well, whereas the reality of the training of avoidance training is that you apply some pressure to the dog, and as a of that, we just talked about, we using the culture, method, that could be just like your finger on the dog's butt to push you down into a tip. But the wider pressure of that, and the dog learns to take that pressure out by doing the behaviour that you want, and then when you put it on cue, you learn to avoid that pressure out by doing it very fast. So. Taking a word that's it, horrible, whenever you know it's a double one, you can bring that up in some little tiny kind of circles and you get kicked in the shin and talk the child. But it's really, it doesn't have to be as bad as people think it does. It just means that the child takes to pressure, and pressure could be anything. It could be a lot in some cases, and then avoid that pressure in the future by adopting the behaviour that you want. So that's pretty much. Or the language anyway, there the probably be more. We'll probably at times we're talking about. And if you with your i wrong thing about well, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a, it's a common niche, right? it's how we use these terms, and then to tell you that we don't want to bore people with the dictionary version. And that's it for another episode of the Canon Paradox. As always, if you like what you're hearing, please on to whatever subscription service you download to, and give it a review. Doing that helps us get in touch with people that uh, we can't interact on Facebook. And if you'd like to get in contact with us, you can do that via our Facebook page, the Canon Paradox, and we also have a website canonparadox
1: the amount of people have actually been listening that I've been looking at the statistics has been overwhelming. Yeah, but it has, it's been overwhelming and I really, both of us really appreciate the support that we've been shown again. You know, I know I've said this quite a few times, people have contacted us said they're really enjoying the show. I'm happy about that because it's something that we invest time and money and effort in. It's actually interesting. One of my employees, Sean, came up to me the other day and said that he kind of felt guilty that he was getting an education for nothing because he gets to listen to the podcast while he's doing deliveries in the van. I did. I said, pay me. Yeah. Well, I just said I'm going to hold some money back from my pay. Yeah.